All right, so I want to start today by looking at your mission statement, because I was on your website, and I noticed this was plastered on the wall as you walk into the sanctuary, uh, but here's your mission statement as a church. It says, connecting you with God, each other, and our community and world. Connecting you with God, each other, and our community and world. Are you guys familiar with this? Do you go back to this mission statement with some degree of frequency? Well, here's the thing. That, uh, a mission statement, it's, it's sort of a short summary statement that summarizes why you exist. That's a purpose of a mission statement. It summarizes why you exist. And so Southside, here's why you exist. It's to connect people with God, with each other, and with the world, right? This is your purpose. This is why you exist as a community of people. And I want to affirm you in your mission statement this morning. I think this is a great mission statement. Part of the reason why I like your mission statement so much is because it's holistic. Um, It doesn't just focus on one thing. Uh, Notice there's actually three key focus areas in your mission statement. Notice, first of all, there's an up component to your mission statement. You're seeking to connect people with God. There's a vertical dimension here. You're seeking to connect people with God through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's not, uh, as you all know, a one-time decision that people pray. It's a lifetime decision that people have to make on a daily basis. You're seeking to help people connect and grow in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ over the course of their lifetime. There's an up, there's a vertical dimension to your mission statement. Then notice there's also an in dimension to your mission statement. You're not just wanting to connect people with God, but you guys want to be connected in community with one another. So you're not just a crowd that gathers on the weekends to watch a worship concert and then rate how well you like the message. You're, you're, you're a, a community that gathers on the weekends but then continues in community to do life together during the week. There's an in component to this. And then notice there's also an out dimension to your mission statement. You all are seeking to engage your community and the world, both locally and globally. It's not insignificant that you have uh, 17 people in Thailand right now. So there's an up component, a vertical dimension where you're growing in relationship with God. There's an in component where you're doing life with one another. And then there's this out dimension where you're seeking to engage God's work, work locally and globally. And it's this last part of your mission statement that I want to speak on today. What does it look like like to really uh, join God's work outside the walls of the church? And to be fair, this is the part of your mission statement that the American church is struggling with most. So I want to submit to you that this is a timely talk. Um, But let me back into it with just a fun question. And the question is this, uh, what, what does Ebola bedbugs, settlers of Catan, and Jesus have in common? They spread. They spread. Uh, Ebola, it spreads. We, our church, my home church, we have a, a, a mission partnership in Mali, Africa. And uh, I was set to go there a few years ago, right when Ebola broke out in Guinea, which is right next door to Mali. And then about three months before I was supposed to go, uh, it crossed over into Mali. And over and over, my wife kept telling me, if it's in Mali, you're not going because I need you more than Africa does. Right? Ebola spreads. Bedbugs. 
Uh, my sister and brother-in-law went to visit some family on his side of the family. Little did they know the hotel they were staying at over the holidays had bed bugs. And those bed bugs got into their luggage. They brought them home and ended up having to get their entire house fumigated. They spread like crazy. Are you guys familiar with the game Settlers of Catan? Yeah? Apparently the Packers love to play this game. So if you're not familiar with it, you need to buy it. It's a lot of fun. But the whole point is to sort of like take over the board and win, right? And see, this is the, this is, it's the same thing with the movement that Jesus started. The movement that Jesus began was designed to spread, but not in a, 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 like a top-down, power-over-coercive kind of a way, but rather in a power-under-self-sacrificial kind of way. Jesus' movement started with 120 people, rather frightened in an, in, in an upper room, and within three centuries of living in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, they turned the entire Roman Empire upside down. The Jesus movement, the movement Jesus began, was designed to multiply and spread through self-sacrificial love. The problem is, that's not really happening in the American church today. Uh, the, the, the American church has largely turned inward. We're no longer expanding, we're shrinking, we're no longer gaining ground, we're losing ground. Pretty much every study would suggest that we're on the same trajectory as, as uh, post-Christian Europe. There's other countries in the global south that are now sending missionaries to the United States to help us with this problem. Here's a statistic that we quote with some degree of frequency in my home church. I'm not sure if I include these in the notes or a slide, but I'll give it to you. If you were born between 1925 and 1945, that's the builder generation, there's a 60% chance that you're in church today. Okay, builders, 60% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1946 and 1964, that's the boomer generation, there's a 40% chance that you're in church today. If you were born between 1965 and 1983, that's the Gen X generation, there's a 20% chance you're in church today. And if you were born after 1984, that's the millennial, and then the Generation Z, there's a less than 10% chance that you're in church today if you live in the United States. Do you see the trajectory here? We're not on the uptick, we're going backwards And this is the case across every denomination, every mainline denomination, Catholics, Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, but it's also the case with evangelical churches just like this one. We're not growing, we're shrinking, we're not gaining ground, we're losing ground. We've traded the the multiplying movement that Jesus began for largely turning inward and focusing on ourselves, and it isn't working. Now, I'm not going to pretend to uh, have all the answers for you this morning, right? There's, there's no way I could preach a message and we can kind of like reverse this trend in, entirely. Uh, but I do think at least part of the solution is everyday ordinary people, just like me, just like you, re- regaining and reclaiming a sense of our missionary identity. We're to be a community of missionaries, who join God's work in the world. So here's our bottom line for today. Meaning if there's one thing you walk away with, let it be this. God invites us to join his mission in the world. God invites us to join in his mission in the world. Couple things to point out right right from the get-go. Notice this is God's mission, 
This isn't our mission. It's God's mission. It's not ours. It's not the church of God that has a mission in the world. Rather, it's the God who's on mission that has a church in the world. The lead singer for U2, his name is Bono, kind of a big deal, once put it this way. He said, stop asking God to bless the things you're doing. Rather, find out where God, what God is already doing, and join that because it's already blessed. See the difference? So often our posture is to come up with an amazing idea of how we're going to have a huge impact for God, and then we sort of invite God into our plans. God, bless the thing that I want to do for you. Rather than finding out what God is already doing because it's already blessed. See, our job isn't to do things for God. Our job is to do things with God. God's already at work trying to draw people to himself. And our primary task is to become divine detectives. To begin discerning what God's already doing in and around us so that we can join in it. And today we're going to talk about what that looks like. How do we do that as a community? Let's pray for open hearts and open minds. Father God, we thank you that you don't just save us from something, but you save us to something. You don't just save us from our sin, but you save us to participate in the work you're doing in the world. So I pray for Southside that you would take this group of individuals, that you would knit them together as a kingdom community, a group of people who are truly committed to one another, but also to joining your work in the world. Infuse them with the power of your Holy Spirit. Help them to learn how to live into the rhythms of multiplication. For we desire not just to know you and to love you, but to serve you as your hands and feet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're talking about what it means to join God's mission in the world. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus training his disciples for this very purpose to join God's work in the world. One of the, one of the primary texts that we see him doing this is in Luke 10, 1 through 12. So I want to read this to you. Luke 10, 1 through 12. It says this, After the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go, he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a, bur- a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed... Eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The central theme in this passage is God's mission. And what gives this away is the sent language. Perhaps Michael touched on this last week, but throughout the scriptures, God's mission is expressed using this word sent. Every time he gives someone a, a, a task, 
they usually express that with sent language. This is how Jesus does it. He's constantly talking about how the Father sent him. So the Father sends the Son into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave or he sent his one and only Son. And then the Father and Son send the Spirit. And then the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit send us, the church. And so, for example, in John 20, Jesus appears to his disciples after he had risen from the dead, and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So this sent language connects us to the work God is doing in the world. God sends us, his people, into the world to join the work he's doing, to participate in it. And in this passage, we see Jesus training his disciples for this very purpose. He gives them uh, instructions on how they're supposed to go as they're being sent. And they're surprisingly specific instructions. He tells them exactly what to do and what not to do. Don't bring a bag, a purse, or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. They're surprisingly specific instructions. And these weren't just for the disciples back then, although some of these instructions are sort of cultural, uh, but they still apply to us today. So here's what I want to do, is I want to make five observations, sort of draw out five principles from these instructions that I think still apply to us today in very practical ways. Here's the first observation. Observation number one, notice we're sent out together. If you're taking notes with their little insert they asked me to provide, this is the first fill in the blank. We are sent out together. And we see this in verse 1. Whenever someone's preaching from God's Word, make sure their points are coming directly from the text. So I'm going to give you the point and then show you right where I got it. We are sent out together. In verse 1, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Notice Jesus doesn't send them out individually. He sends them out in community. He sends them out two by two, in pairs. Doesn't send them out by themselves. What Jesus is doing here is he's combining two important elements, community and mission, and he brings them together. And this is the primary expression of the church in the New Testament. It's a group of people who are doing life together, community, but also joining God's work in the world. There's no such thing in the New Testament as Lone Ranger Christianity, this idea that you can follow Jesus all by yourself. There's no such thing as operating as an isolated evangelist, sort of trying to win people for Jesus all by yourself. The, the, the minimum of what it means to be a church in the New Testament is that you're in community and joining God's work in the world. We're sent out together. And so in my home church, uh, we place a lot of emphasis on what we call kingdom communities. Kingdom communities. And a kingdom community is just a group of people who are committed to one another. That's the community part. And to joining God's work outside the walls of the church. That's the kingdom part. And you go, oh, well, man, I got the perfect vehicle for that. They're, they're called small groups, right? Aren't small groups supposed to be, you know, kind of like kingdom communities, people who are together? And I would say, yes. It's exactly what small groups are supposed to be. And yet what I've noticed all across the United States, this is the case at almost every church, is that most small groups do not have an outward focus at all. 
the vast majority of small groups have an upward focus where they're connecting and growing in their relationship with God. They study the scriptures and they pray both very good things. They have an inward focus where they're growing in their friendship with one another. They support each other during the tough times and the good times. But man, most small groups have no discerned way as a community where they've said, here's what God is doing in our neighborhood or community, and we're going to rhythmically participate in that side by side. Most small groups have an upward and an inward focus with no outward focus whatsoever. And so one of the things I'm most passionate about in our church is helping existing small groups either make that shift by discerning a way that God's inviting them to make a difference or helping groups start with that DNA from the very beginning. So perhaps you're in a small group here or you're leading a small group. My first question for you this morning is, where is God inviting you to join his work outside the walls of the church? And how are you leading your community to participate in that actively? want to be a group of people who are committed to one another and to joining God's work in the world. We're sent out together. We don't want to be a community without a mission. We also don't want to be a mission without a community. Observation number two, we are sent out vulnerably. We're sent out vulnerably. See this in verse three and four, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. We're sent out vulnerably, and there's two layers to this. First, notice uh, we're sent out like lambs among wolves. In other words, there's inherent danger if you're going to try to join God's work in the world. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be resistance. You can expect pushback. It's It's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when. And when you experience opposition, notice we're to be lambs, not wolves. In other words, our response to opposition is to be the same as Jesus' response, who is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world by laying down his life. When you confront opposition, your response is to be lamb-like, not wolf-like. We win not by powering over other people, but by laying down our lives for those who are persecuting us. We're sent out vulnerably. There's a sense of spiritual warfare. But the way we win isn't by sort of asserting our power, by becoming wolf-like. It's rather by laying down our lives like self-sacrificial lambs, just like we saw Jesus doing. The other layer of vulnerability is notice we're sent out empty-handed, empty-handed. Jesus says, don't take a purse, a bag, or sandals. He doesn't send them out equipped. He sends them out vulnerable with nothing to rely on. In fact, he sends them out and he forces them to rely on the, the hospitality of those they're trying to reach. He puts his disciples at the mercy of the people that they're seeking to influence. He sends them out empty-handed and now they have to rely on the people that they're trying to engage really interesting. Now, I've led a number of groups, and we've spent a lot of time in this passage trying to live it out, and one thing we notice in our home church is we have a really hard time going empty-handed. We've done a number of experiments, and what we've noticed is that we actually prefer to go with our hands 
full. Our default is to go with our hands full, to be the ones who provide for the need of another person, to serve in some way, to be the ones who step in and sort of save or rescue the day, right? Every time we tried to move towards our community, our default was, what could we do to serve or make a difference? How could we play the hero? And over time, what we noticed, especially as we spent time in this passage and the Lord started to convict us, is that Jesus actually flips this. See, every time there's a giving and receiving dynamic in a relationship, the person who gives is in the position of power, and the person who receives has to humble themselves and recognize, I don't have something that you do, and I need to open my hands to receive it. And Jesus was very aware of this, so he just reverses it and says, you're going to be the ones to receive. You're going to, the one, you're, you're going to be the ones who take the, the, the posture of humility and open up your hands and put yourself at the mercy of other people. And I'll just tell you, it works. It works. Um, I have, there's 13 houses on the street I live in, 13 houses. Um, I can tell you the name of every single person on my street and their story, where they work, what they do, what they care about. Very few of them go to church. Um, The most significant interactions I've had with my neighbors are usually when I ask for help in some way. So, for instance, my neighbor, Kurt, who lives right across the street, used to be a car mechanic. So anytime my car has an issue, I go to Kurt first. And some of our best conversations have been when we're putzing on my car and he begins to open up. Two doors down, I got a neighbor named Steve who has every tool you could ever think of, and he knows how to fix everything. I'm not like that at all. I don't know, own anything. So every time we have a problem, I just go to Steve, and he loves hanging out and talking. And it's while we're working on something together, they'll begin to open up and share his life story with me. My neighbor Bob, next door, he weighs about 400 pounds. He's huge and has horrible health. This summer, he's been mowing my lawn every week. And finally, I asked him, I said, Bob, why are you mowing my grass? And he said, he's got a riding lawnmower. He said, Mac, I see how busy you are. And I see the things that you're doing. And if there's one thing I could do to make your life easier, I'm going to do it. And then he said, plus, and he got like this little smile. He goes, plus, my yard is smaller than yours, so I can't go very fast. But your yard in the backyard, I, I have a need for speed, he said. <laughs> right? So it's like, it's like, As you put yourself at the mercy, as Josie and I and our family has put ourselves at the mercy of our neighbors and asked for help, that's when the best relational interactions have begun to take place. It's not as we go and do things for them because then they feel indebted to us. It's as we ask for help that relationships begin to form. What would it look like for you to assume a posture of vulnerability? as you move toward your community. We're sent out together. We're sent out vulnerably. And thirdly, we're sent out with peace to look for peace. This is a game changer. We're sent out with peace to look for peace. We see this in verses 5 and 6. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. So Jesus sends out the 72 with peace to look for persons of peace. He sends them out empty-handed, but the one thing they do go with is peace. 
this customary Jewish greeting of shalom. And so when they enter a town, the first thing they're going to do is just say, peace to this home. Shalom to this home. And then Jesus says, one of two things are going to happen. Either these people will uh, receive your peace and reciprocate peace, in which case your peace multiplies, or they're going to reject your invitation of peace, in which case you don't lose out because that peace will then return to you. So your peace will either be multiplied, it will be received and reciprocated, or it will be rejected, in which case it will return to you, and you're going to use that response to pay attention to where you're supposed to stay and invest. So there's two keys to identifying persons of peace. The first is this, you have to be a person of peace in order to identify a person of peace. There's no way that you're going to be able to identify a person of peace when you're on mission if you yourself aren't a person of peace. You've got to be sent out with peace. And then secondly, you've got to know what you're looking for. So here's a person of peace. This is our definition at my home church. A person of peace is someone who is open to you and receives you. They welcome you. They reciprocate relationally with you. So there's giving and receiving. It's not just one dimensional. It goes both ways. And there's some responsiveness to God's grace at work in their life. There's some spirit. There's at least a little spiritual seeking happening. They're open to you. They reciprocate relationally and they're responsive to God's grace. And once you identify a person of peace, that's where you're supposed to invest your time and energy. And we see this in the verse right after when Jesus says, stay there, stay there, eating what is set before you. This, again, this is a game changer because what this means is uh, when you're on mission, not everybody is going to be a person of peace to you. Not everybody will be a person of peace to you. So again, my wife and I, we've got 13 homes on our street. We know each one of them. But not everybody's a person of peace. So for instance, two, two doors down from us, we'll just call this couple uh, John and Sue. John and Sue are about our age, and they have three boys just like us, and you'd think we'd have an amazing connection with them. But every time we've tried to engage John and Sue, they're just kind of standoffish. And normally, I would go back and I'd sort of retool and go, oh man, what can we do? What do I need to do to get like John and Sue to be more favorable towards us? Like, what do I need to do? But instead, my wife Josie and I have just said, you know what? They're not, they're not persons of peace right now. That's not a permanent label. It's more like a sticky label. Doesn't mean we kind of stiff arm them. Every time we see them, we're still friendly and engaging because we're hopeful that one day they will become persons of peace to us. But there's another couple like across the street and four doors down named Chris and Ashley. And from the moment they moved on to our street about four years ago, they were open to us, welcoming to us, reciprocated, and they started asking spiritual questions. So we'll host uh, bonfires on our driveway, and Chris and Ashley would always come over, and, and at some point during the conversation, they'd turn it Godward because they're wrestling through questions and stuff. Last summer, they invited me to officiate their wedding. Every time they're out and they're talking, they, they, they stop and they want to engage. Every indicator is you're a person of peace. And so if we have to choose between John and Sue or Chris and Ashley, we're going to choose Chris and Ashley because that's where God's grace is being received. And that's where we're going to spend our time and energy. Now, again, that doesn't, we say it's a sticky label. It doesn't mean that John and Sue won't become persons of peace. 
but it just means we want to go where God's grace is active. And that's what Jesus is instructing here. So here's a great exercise for you. Who are the persons of peace in your life that don't yet know Jesus? On your street or in your apartment complex, who are the persons of peace that live around you? In your workplace, who are the, per- the persons of peace in your workplace? In the third spaces that you frequent, uh, maybe it's a, a coffee shop or a, a, a health club or a gym or whatever, who are the persons of peace there? Who's God inviting you to stay there, stay consistently present so you can join His work in the world? We're sent out with peace to look for peace. Fourth observation, we're sent out to show and tell. We're sent out to show and tell. We see this in verse 8 and 9. When you enter a town and are welcome to eat what is offered to you, then watch this. He says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So notice Jesus sends them out to show their faith. Heal the sick who are there. That's showing. And then he says, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. Tell them. So there's both a showing and a telling. There's both a demonstration and a proclamation. These two go together. And here's what I've noticed in working with a lot of churches, is that most churches try to force you to choose between one of these. Uh, Many churches want to try to prioritize one over the other. So, for instance, I grew up in a church where it was all about telling. Telling telling people about Jesus was considered the most important thing. And they were uh, unapologetic about this. This is how they taught. What matters most is people hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they'd say things like, what good is it to care for people's physical needs without addressing their spiritual needs? Why would we care for someone's body without also caring for the soul? What people need, what matters most is telling people about Jesus. But see, here's the thing. Most of our, most of our problems can be fixed if we just look at Jesus, I'm telling you that right now. Most of your theological problems will be fixed if you just look at Jesus, what he taught, and what he did. And see, the problem with trying to elevate one of these over the other is that Jesus never did that. He never did that. He never forces you to choose. And in fact, on pretty much every page of the Gospels, you'll see Jesus doing both simultaneously. He's both proclaiming the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom all the time, doing them simultaneously. And so both showing and telling are two sides of the same kingdom coin. You've got to both proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom as you join God's work in the world. You've got to both embody the gospel in deed and expound on the gospel with your words. They go together. And in fact, if you really want to push this, notice in our passage that demonstration seems to pave the way for proclamation. Jesus first says, heal the sick who are there, and then tell them the kingdom of God has come near. It's like that old phrase, like people don't know, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. One of the biggest mistakes we've made in evangelism is out of our own anxiety and perhaps a desire to see everybody come to faith, we haven't been relationally present enough. 
So we just kind of like throw spiritual truths at people, hoping that they'll get into the kingdom without actually being present relationally. And this has backfired on us because people don't feel like we really care for them, so they don't care about what we're telling them. It's not good. I'm telling you, with that trend downward, one of the keys, if we're going to play a role in reversing it, is actually moving toward people, not as projects to get them into heaven, but as genuine friendships. Like Jesus shared a whole lot of meals with people, and it didn't seem like he ended every meal asking if they'd pray and start following him. If his primary aim was just to get people to pray a prayer, to change where they go after they die, he was really bad at it. Because conservative estimates would suggest he ate with well over 10,000 people. But he ended up with about 120 influencers who were actually willing to join his work in the world. You seeing the difference here? So what's your default? This is a question we ask in a lot of our discipleship groups. Most of us have a default. It's either showing or telling. What's your default? Is it friendship evangelism? Or what I like to call evangelism by osmosis? Where we think if we just befriend people, we don't have to say anything because eventually they'll just, by based on proximity to me, they'll become a Christian. I don't ever have to say anything. Is that you? You'll never open up your mouth. You'll be present to people, but you won't present the gospel to people. Or is it strong arm evangelism where you sort of coerce and manipulate people into trying to receive Jesus? Both of those are, are incorrect. But what's your default? Is it just telling people about Jesus without showing, or is it showing without ever telling? Here's the final observation. We're sent out with a guarantee. We're sent out with a guarantee. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now watch this. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your time will be wiped from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. So notice this. We're sent out with a guarantee. But the guarantee isn't the response, how people are going to respond to us. The guarantee is that either way, the kingdom of God has come near. You're going to go into these towns You're going to proclaim and you're going to demonstrate the kingdom. People are going to respond in one of two ways. They're either going to accept your message, welcome you, and and as a result, the kingdom of God will flourish, or they're going to reject you. But either way, this is the guarantee, the kingdom of God has come near. How people respond isn't up to you. The only guarantee I'm giving you is that the kingdom of God will have come near. And this is another game changer Because what it means is that we're not responsible for the results. In fact, when we do think we're responsible for the results and we get positive results, we end up taking credit for it rather than giving God the credit. We're not responsible for the results. Your job is to faithfully follow these steps, follow these instructions that Jesus gives you, and trust that the result is up to God and how he's moving in a person's heart or life. And once again, this will take all the pressure off. I try to tra- I've trained a lot of people, and most people, when they hear the word evangelism uh, or think about joining God's work in the world, they get all tense and anxious, and they get sweaty armpits because they think they've got to do all this stuff, and it's on them to produce something. What, what, what a permission to step into freedom to go, how people respond isn't up to you. 
Meaning if someone doesn't respond, you don't have to like, my default would be to like rethink, re-strategize. How can I get them to respond differently? But that's not what Jesus did in the gospels. Jesus seemed very content to simply offer people what he offered them and then let, let them decide. He had a very non-anxious presence about how people were going to respond to him. And what you see happening is people respond in one of a few ways. They respond positively and become a follower, or they walk away sad or angry. But you never see Jesus chasing someone down the dusty trail going, wait, 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 maybe if I say it differently, you'll think about it more. You never see him doing that. He simply offered people to enter into God's kingdom, and he let them decide. And I'm suggesting to you that it should be the same for us. The results aren't up to us. Your job is to simply proclaim and demonstrate God's kingdom with faithfulness. We're sent out together. You're not sent out by yourself. We're sent out as a community to join God's mission in the world. We're sent out vulnerably with our hands empty, lamb-like, not wolf-like. We're sent out with peace to look for peace. Man, does this world need peace right now. We're sent out to show and tell, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. And we're sent out with a guarantee that when we do that, the kingdom of God will come near. So here's some next steps for you to consider. Three questions I want you to ponder this week. Because here's the thing. Uh, When you come to church and you worship and you listen to a message, we're not just to hear, we're to respond. Right? We're to be doers of God's word. So here's some ways that you can take this to the next level. Three questions for you. What town is God sending you to right now? What town is God sending you to right now? Jesus sent out the 72 to different places. Where is God sending you? Here's some ideas for you. Could be your neighborhood. My wife Josie and I lead a neighborhood kingdom community. We have 14 families that live within a half mile of us, and our mission is to learn how to love our neighbors in the way of Jesus. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's your workplace. If you work 40 hours a week from 25 to 65, which is the average length of a career, and you also attended church every week without missing, you would spend over 90,000 hours more at work than you would at church. So where is God at work in the place that you work? If that's where you're spending all, all your time, that might be a place God is wanting you to join his work in the world. It could be a third space, a coffee shop, a gym. My wife and I uh, do CrossFit. We're CrossFit coaches. And that's one of our places that we're identifying lists of persons of peace and we're seeing people come to faith in Jesus. Maybe it's a partnership in your community. For example, our teens have a strategic partnership hanging out at a memory care facility for people who are suffering from Alzheimer's. And they care for the patients and their family members. Neighborhood, workplace, third space, strategic partnership. Who can you take with you as you go? You're not to go by yourself. So who can you take with you? Maybe you're already part of a small group. Where can you join in together? And then finally, who are the people of peace there? I encourage you to begin writing down a list of the people and slowly identify who's open to you, who reciprocates relationship with you, and who is somewhat responsive to God's grace. 
Sound good? All right. I'm out of gas. So uh, if you want to stand, I will close us in prayer this morning. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a, a privilege and a blessing. Let me pray for you. Father God, once again, I thank you for Southside Alliance Church. I thank you for this group of people that you've brought together at this time and in this place to worship you, to grow in relationship with you, to connect with you through the person of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would be a catalyst for growth in their life. I pray that you'd knit them together as a, as a community that genuinely cares for one another. I pray against divisions and divisiveness, but that this would be a community that practices the one another's, to love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. And I pray that they would also be a community that isn't just focused upward and inward, but also outward, that they'd see this privileged calling that you've placed upon them to be your co-laborers, ambassadors, and workers with you. As they leave today, God, I pray that you'd send them out with the power of your Holy Spirit, for we cannot do any work in your kingdom by our own strength or our own might. So fill them with your Holy Spirit. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace and love.